may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. For those of you who remain, whether here in person or on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me to Philippians uh, chapter 3. We're looking this morning at verses 12 through 16. Paul has, in uh, the beginning of chapter 3, uh, set before us this uh, great uh, call to count everything as loss for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. But you might wonder to yourself, well, how exactly do I do that? And so for the next two weeks, uh, we'll be looking at these passages where he explains that practically uh, for us. Here, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. This is God's Word. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Lord Almighty, we are certainly not perfect. So teach us then what it means for us to answer this upward call of God in Christ Jesus that we may press on in Him. We ask that you would teach us this, that you would work this in us for your glory. We ask it in Christ. Amen. So I am told that we are looking at another weekend of snow. Thankfully, it's after Sunday morning service. And when I moved here, Oh, over nine years ago, I was told, and you know who you are, it hardly ever snows up here, down here, wherever it is. And, and every year but one, it has snowed. Many, multiple times. That's fine. But I remember one time, every time snow happens, I remember this one big snow we had where about six or seven o'clock we realized at night our heat was out. And I studied mechanical engineering in college. Nobody was going to come and save us. There was too much snow and ice on the ground. I could do this. The internet was still up, so I looked up. I figured out the error codes. I took the panel off. It was the pressure switch. I took the pressure switch out. I took it apart. I put it back together again. I blew in it where they said to blow in it, and it didn't fix anything. Now, I can draw still to this day schematics of HVAC systems. I understand the theory, but thank God, at 8 a.m., the HVAC man braved the icy roads and came, and he looked and said, you're right, it's the pressure switch. Took it off, took out a paper clip, and in the little piece that the pressure switch connected to, put the paper clip in it and knocked out a piece of trash that had been stuck in there. That man earned his pay because he didn't have just theory. He had the practice. He had the experience. He had seen that before. And he knew exactly what the problem was. 
It took him literally a minute. Christian discipleship cannot be relegated to the realm of theory only. If you can recite all the answers to all the questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but do not have the practice, the experience of discipleship in your life, all of that knowledge is worthless to you. Worse, it will will be a weight around your neck when you stand before the living God because you knew better. How are we supposed to move beyond theory to practice? What does it mean for us to do as Paul calls us to earlier in this passage, count everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord? How are we to respond as disciples living lives by faith in the real world, following where Jesus leads. Well, Paul tells us five practical helps in this passage. We have five practical helps. I'm not going to tell you what they all are right now. You're going to have to wait. But I hope that at the end of it, you will have a little bit more of an idea of what it means for you to be a disciple of Jesus here in the real world. The first is this. You see it in verse 12. We have to remember that we are not our own. Paul says, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. I press on to make the resurrection my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, maybe this sounds like we're still dabbling in the realm of theory and knowledge, but nothing could be further from the truth. This is the most fundamental, real, practical, day-to-day, real-life issue we can grapple with. Why do you do anything that you do? Ever seen that loose thread in a sweater or a jacket or something and you start pulling on it and before you realize it, you've, you've torn the whole thing apart. It just falls apart. Just took one thread, grab on it, and it connected everything. If I was to grab onto the, the thread that holds together your motivation for the things that you do from day to day, why you drink coffee or don't drink coffee, why you have that job, why you say these things to your family members and your co-workers, why you decide to do this and not to do that. If I were to grab onto that thread and pull on it, what would connect it all? What would be the reason why you do the things you do? Our culture preaches to us the gospel of Radical individualism and self-actualization. That the reason you do whatever you do ought to be so that you can find out who you really are so that you can be happy. Why do you join that Facebook group and not that one? 
Why do you follow this Twitter thread and not that one? Why do you read these books? Why do you go to these parties? Why do you buy these brands? So you can be happy. So you can be you. And while I could spend a lot of time talking about how ludicrous that is, fact is we all buy into that on some level at some point during the day. I just want to be happy. This will make me happy. This decision, God, I hope you baptize this. And and we forget that what Paul says, the thread that that ought to connect everything in our life is, is we haven't been made perfect. We are still living in a fallen world. There is still so much trial and suffering and tribulation and misery and sin and brokenness. But the reason we press on, the reason we put one foot in front of another, the reason we get up in the morning, the reason we go to sleep at night, the reason we we do anything that we do ought to be. Because Jesus has made us his own. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. But in his grace and in his mercy, he has come. And he said, you are mine. And the way you live ought to reflect that. Paul has talked about how he is so deeply connected to Christ that when Christ died, We also died to sin. We looked at this a few weeks ago. When Christ rose again from the dead, we were given new life in him that we no longer had to follow the powers and principalities of this world. That when the scripture says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, we can say, because we are so deeply connected to him, that we also are seated with him in the heavenly realms. But that connection, it goes both ways. And what Paul is working out here is not only am I so connected to Christ that what he has accomplished, he has accomplished for me, but that Christ, in making me his own, has put, as one pastor said, the imprint of heaven on us. And he is going to form us and to shape us and to mold us according to his likeness, according to his purpose. And he is calling us to press on in that because he's made us his own. Where we go, what we do, why we do it, what we endure, why we endure it, all of this. It's because Christ is perfecting us in him. And this is so practical because so often we move from moment to moment in this life and we don't give a thought to why we do what we do. We don't give a thought to whose we are. And in so doing, we claim ownership of ourselves for ourselves. Because if we don't have to think about it, we just trust We'll make all the right decisions. We'll do all the right things. So what would it look like for you, day to day, to pause and seek the Lord and ask, 
how are you, O Lord, going to work this out in me today? Who will you bring across my path? What trial might I have to endure? What lesson should I learn? What sacrifice might be required of me? What glorious work of grace will you do? What joy will you bestow? If we are going to live as disciples of Christ in the real world, we have to recognize consciously, purposefully, intentionally. We have to remember we are not our own. The second practical help is this. You see it in verse 13, that we need to be those who forget what is behind and strain forward to what is ahead. This is passage that can be twisted and misused quite easily. You need to understand what Paul means by forgetting what is behind. He's not saying that we pay the past no mind. He's just spent time saying, I used to be this. I was a Pharisee. Paul's not wandering around going, was, it, was I the one that was persecuting the church? That, that was me? He regularly appeals to his past, to his experience. This isn't a forgetting of what lies behind that that pays the past no mind. This is a submitting of our past to Christ such that it no longer wields control over us. That we press forward to what he has called us to do and to be. The past exerts a lot of control over you and over me. This is what shame does. It tells this lie over and over again. Do you remember this thing that you've done? You're not worthy of this calling. You'll never be able to undo this. You will never be able to make up for this. Why bother? This is what nostalgia does. This living in the past. Oh, if only we could go back to the days when that person I cared about was still with me. To when life was easier, simpler, according to my perceptions anyway. If only I could go back and if only... Only. This is what pride does. Look at all these things that I've done for you, Lord. I've built up a mountain of righteousness. Look at me. Reward me. The past would wield control over us if we allow it. But in Christ, we don't have to. We can forget what is behind. There is nothing in your past that you could have done or that could have been done to you that has the power to overwhelm Jesus' mercy and keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. There is no righteous work that you've done in the past that is good enough 
that Jesus takes such notice of it and is in such awe of it that you can somehow earn your way into the kingdom of heaven either. And there is no era of the past that can possibly compare to the glory that is yet to be revealed in the children of God when Jesus returns and restores all things. Our best days are not ever, ever behind us. But we can strain forward to what is ours in Christ because he's made us new. And every day he makes us new. The scriptures say in Colossians 3 that we are daily renewed in the knowledge and image of our creator. There's a sense of, in which this forgetting is remembering the reality that it is never too late to start over in Christ. As long as it's called today, there is always an opportunity for renewed faith and repentance. In fact, we ought to be a people who bear the fruit, faith, and repentance daily. But there's also a call in there that says that in order to forget what's behind and strain forward to what's ahead, we are going to have to learn what it means to die to ourselves, to our righteousness, to our works, even to our shame. Follow Jesus in newness of life. How might you today learn anew what it means to die to yourself and live to Jesus? To start again in Him. Maybe there is a person you need to go to and seek forgiveness or offer it. Maybe there is a thing that was done to you that you need to not let control you anymore. And so seek help and guidance and good counsel that would point you to the freedom that's yours in Christ. Perhaps there is an addiction, a habit, a thing that you have developed to cope with whatever that has its claws in you and you can't get free. What would it look like for you to step out in faith and learn what it means to die to those things and live to Jesus? It looks a lot like forgetting what's behind and pressing on towards what's ahead. So the third help that I have is this. You have to understand that what you are pressing forward toward, the prize that awaits the disciple of Jesus is Jesus. Sometimes we forget this. We, we wonder, what is Christianity all about? Ask your non-Christian friends this question. What do you think Christianity is all about? It will be an education for you. Some of them will say, well, it's about God's wrath against sin, and, and you need to get, get right with him so you don't go to hell. It's about forgiveness and, and, and love and God just loving you and giving you the things you need about 
There's always like little bits and pieces of truth in these things, but never the whole picture. And it's interesting that when Jesus talks about like what it's like to be a part of God's household and God's family, so often he uses the imagery of a banquet. We're hurting, like we heard this parable. It's not the only parable where Jesus uses this banquet imagery. This is, and lost in there is like, this is what my father does. He throws a big party and invites everyone in. The lame and the blind and the weak and the sinful. Why would you think that going to check out a few oxen is more important than that? And why would you blame your wife like Adam did? Say, I'm sorry, I can't come. It's her fault. Like, God's throwing a party. Where are you? Or when the prodigal son returns and the father runs and throws himself on him, what does he do but kills the fattened calf and throws a big party? We look even at that great banquet that is yet to come, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. What does it look like? What is it like to be a part of God's family, His household? It's a joyful, incredible, fulfilling banquet of God's blessing and kindness and grace and mercy, and he bids us come. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let this sink in. God calls us to himself. What discipleship is, is answering that call. God is drawing us near to him. This upward call of God is that we would be with him forever, that faith would be sight, and that we would never know another day where our God is not with us to wipe away every tear to take away every sorrow, to bring every joy. And this is not a, a health and wealth gospel. We've already heard Paul say, like, to, to get there. Yeah, we'll walk through some dark valleys, but God is with us even then. His goodness and mercy lead us even then. Psalm 23, from which our confession of sin was adapted. What does it not say? Does it not say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even here in the real world, there are opportunities to catch glimpses of God's goodness and kindness and abounding grace to us. And being a disciple is never losing sight. That God is calling us to draw ever nearer to him. This works itself out in all kinds of things. But let me give you one specific example. I'm reading this book by Paul Tripp called Parenting. I figured my kids are juniors and seniors in high school. should probably figure this thing out. This book is rocking my world. I don't care if you're a parent or an empty nester 
a parent-to-be, or a, I don't care if you're 16. You should read this book. I haven't made it out of chapter 2 yet. He, he asked this question, like, why do we, as parents, always feel inadequate to the task? And if you've, if you've ever had any responsibility, not just parental responsibility, but any responsibility, sometimes you get these big responsibilities, you're like, I can't do this. And parenting is one of those. Like, there's no manual. There's no list of expectations. It doesn't matter. Even if you're doing your best job, you still manage to mess up. Paul is like, he says, Paul Tripp says, if you feel that inadequacy, if you feel that lack, it's because it's true. Why then would God trust entrust people who are not up to the task with such a monumental task as raising children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Maybe why don't we give it to robots? And Tripp makes this observation. It's because God in all of these things is trying to teach his people that we need him. We need to draw near to him. We need to depend on his wisdom and his strength and his mercy and his resurrection power. And he entrusts weak, frail, and fallible people like us with the monumental task of parenting because he wants to show us our deep need for him. His abounding mercy. He even uses these things to draw us in, to call us upward to God himself in Christ. You can work this out in all kinds of areas in your life. Does it mean for you to draw near to God in that? The prize is Jesus The fourth practical help I have for you is this. We ought to seek to grow in the wisdom and truth of Christ. You see this in verse 15 where Paul says, the Apostle Paul, not Paul Tripp, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. And you might read that and say, well, that's kind of arrogant. But it's not. That's not what Paul's saying. Look, life's hard. Sin is real. You have it. It wreaks havoc on our lives, on our relationships, on the world. You get a bunch of sinners together and you have systems of sin. And then don't even mention Satan running around roaring like a lion trying to devour God's people. Life is hard. The past haunts us. The future uncertainty makes us afraid, and whatever present burdens you are bearing are no doubt heavy. And you might wonder, what happens if I get it wrong? It's an interesting feature of scientific journals. Uh, If you ever have a chance to peruse them, uh, find as many as you can that say, We studied this hypothesis that A affects B, and we did this procedure and this process, and we found out it doesn't have anything to do with it. Sorry, we were wrong. 
be a real short paper probably, but you don't see a lot of those. Like, there's, no, there's no motivation to publish journal articles that say, scientifically, there's no basis for our assertion. Moving on, we'll try something else next time. And yet, like, the, the whole industry seems to have this allergy to being wrong. There are a few. There are a few out there, but not many. The glories in publishing the great insights and the new connections. But science ought to be the sort of enterprise that encourages failure. We want to find out that those two things have nothing to do with one another. Correlation does not equal causation and all that. And it's sad that it doesn't exist that way. But I tell you this, in God's household, there is room for failure. Not encouragement to fail. Don't misunderstand. There is room for it. God loves process. He could have snapped his fingers, said a word, and the universe would have been created instantly. But he took six days to do it and then rested at the end. God could have just thought it and man, Adam, would have been fully formed right there, but he got down in the mud and fashioned him himself. God could have just wiped everything away. He's shown that he has the power and the flood and said, I'm going to start over and it's going to be good. But, but he saved a, a particular family and he, and he grew out of them all the nations of the world. He claimed one of those for his very own and spent hundreds of years discipling them. Jesus could have shown up with a ball of fire, destroyed the Romans, and everyone would have bowed down to worship him. But instead, he was born as a babe in a manger, grew, learned carpentry, gathered 12 pitiful little men around him as his disciples, and spent three years teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. God loves process for some reason. He created a world full of trees and flowers and plants that grow, people that grow. From infants to mature adults. And part of discipleship is growing in maturity. And as the Apostle Paul declares the truth of God's Word under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit in a way that is not to be doubted, he says, but if you don't see all of this just yet, don't worry. God will make this also clear to you. Because what he does what he is about is growing us in wisdom and maturity and so there is room in the household of god for failure not encouragement but room for it because there's always room for repentance because there's always room for growth god's growing us in maturity where do you need to mature? Like, what is an area of your life, if the elders were to sit down with you and say, like, where do you struggle the most? Where would it be? We ask that question from time to time in our shepherding visits, and we get all kinds of different answers. Well, I'm really struggling at work. or I'm, But I tell you, one of the answers we get almost all the time is I'm really struggling in my devotional life. I'm really struggling to connect to God in prayer. And we'll probably offer you good advice about that. But, but like discipleship, 
in the real world is seeing those areas where we need to grow in maturity, looking to God who wants to draw us near and teach us and make these things clear to us, forgetting all of our failures from behind and moving forward to what's ahead and saying, Lord, today, perhaps I can learn a little bit more of what it means to connect to you in prayer. This is one reason we have so much prayer in our worship service, so that whether you are 6 or 60, you can hear prayer. This is why we have the prayer time before worship, because we, we all recognize, like all of us need to learn and grow in this. Let's do it together. Let's not be ashamed. Why is it that... You know, I'm the one that always gets asked to pray at Thanksgiving meal. Doesn't anybody else know how to pray? Let's get together and learn together to pray. Maybe there's another area where you need to grow in maturity. What does it look like then for you to forget what's behind and step forward in faith and press on towards Christ? Seek Him. Seek to grow in his wisdom and in his truth. At last, and certainly not least, you see this in verse 16, the last practical help I have for you is this. We're to be disciples in the real world. We have to hold true to what we already have received in Christ. This is important because it's easy to forget the gospel. The Pharisees lost sight that of that great promise sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. And instead, they started to read it as, if he's to be our God, we need to be worthy people. And they started constructing all of these rules and they forgot the gracious initiative of God himself. You, I am taking the initiative. I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. I'm going to make it so. And they came up with all these exhausting rules how many steps you could take on the Sabbath and how, how, how heavy a burden you could carry, like a fig. And they forgot the good news that though they were sinners, God initiated a relationship with them. We can forget that too. Forget that the whole reason we're talking about discipleship is because of what Christ has already done for us and what he is doing in us and what he will do. Never lose sight of the basics. What we have attained, we haven't attained on our own. Paul says, I'm, I haven't done this. I didn't make it my own. Jesus, Jesus has done all of this. And it's that good news that empowers and motivates all of the other things. It's like a cornerstone which they don't really use anymore. They have GPS and electronics and lasers and all that. But when they used to build a building, they'd lay the cornerstone, right? And everything that they built after would follow that guide. And if it was out of alignment, they had to take it out and fix it. Everything ought to be in the alignment with our cornerstone, the good news that we have in Christ Jesus. He is our God. We're His people. Who is Christ to you today? Have you lost sight of what you've already attained in him? Has he become for you a harsh taskmaster, an angry sheriff, a 
dismissive and disappointed father? Or is he the king of glory who came to seek and to save the lost, even you? What does it look like for you to return to that truth, to be renewed in what he has done, to meditate on his love for weak and frail sinners? Look, the whole point of discipleship could be summed up in that that question, what is being imprinted on you? If Christ has made you his own, he has put the imprint of heaven on you and he is working to bring it to maturity so that more and more you will be salt and light in this world, that you will reveal his glory and his resurrection power, not by conquering all your enemies, but by bearing the fruit of the Spirit and seeing people come to faith. All too often, though, We forget that call of God to draw near to him, to be conformed to him. And we start to just live day to day, moment to moment, to whatever it is we want or whatever it is we desire or whatever it is the world tells us or whatever it is the latest Super Bowl commercial is making us laugh at. And we forget the glory and the surpassing worth of our God calls us to discipleship because he calls us to himself. He will be our God. We are his people. Let's live in that truth. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need you to imprint afresh and anew upon us your heavenly truth. There are so much that we are blind to. There is so much that we have forgotten. There is so much that we have done wrong. There are so many wayward paths that we have taken. Lord, help us to see you are the God of resurrection and that we can forget what is behind. It doesn't rule over us. Press on to what is ahead, that prize that is drawing ever closer to Christ Jesus until that day we see him face to face. Work this out in us, I pray that we might be disciples of Jesus, salt and light, even in the real world. We ask it in his name. Amen.